Well, on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Happy New Year. <clears throat> it's this time of year, especially during the holidays, uh, Christmas especially, Thanksgiving and Christmas together, that six-week period, that when people probably experience the most discouragement or depression. As they become introspective about the circumstances in their life and the relationships in their life, they begin to realize things aren't the way they wish they were. As we move to the new year, there's kind of a, an attitude, a, a tradition, a habit that we might look at those circumstances and those relationships and say, you know what, I'm going to take a new crack at it. I'm going to try a different approach. I'm going to start over where I've quit. And the tendency is uh, we want to go, uh, you know, it's like the phrase, uh, how's that working for you? Uh, comes up uh, frequently. And so, hey, I'm going to go get some counsel. I'm going to go talk to somebody uh, to get new insight. Some people will go to a bookstore and find the latest bestseller. Maybe they've got something to, to give. Others may go down to the bar and talk to their favorite bartender. He's been through a lot. Others may go out with uh, a good friend for coffee and hear what they have to say. Others may go to a restaurant with a coworker and try and get some input. Others may actually pay money to go see a therapist who's a trained expert. They'll know what to do. But can I pose a question as you think about the concept of going and getting counsel? What constitutes good and wise counsel? What's the ultimate desired outcome that you hope to experience as a result of the counsel from others? You see, unfortunately, I've, I've come to, to realize that many people go looking for counsel, but they don't know how to evaluate whether it's good or bad counsel because they've not really solidified in their own minds their own worldview and, as believers, our own faith and understanding of that now, we're not really sure what good counsel is. We're not really able to evaluate it. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Is as we look at the new year and we evaluate, hey, I want to possibly change some things in relationships in my life. I may want to address some circumstances that have been difficult. How do I know what I'm doing is the right outcome, the right purpose, the right goal that God has called us to? If you would open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, this is the first of two verses that are uh, very clear as to what the ultimate objective should be of any counsel that we receive from somebody. This is how we can evaluate whether or not it's correct 
Because today in the world, the tendency is for a person to think, well, is this council going to make me happy? Is it going to provide me pleasure or personal satisfaction? Is it going to help me avoid or remove some pain that's in my life? Is it going to give me good health physically, emotionally, and even relationally? That's kind of a common phrase today, right? Your relationships aren't healthy. I'm not sure how you determine the health of a relationship, but uh, that's a common phrase. So what does Scripture say should be the ultimate objective of any counsel that you and I receive regarding how I should address this year the circumstances in my life and the relationships in my life? 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. Paul was talking about the whole issue of should I eat meat uh, sacrificed to idols? Uh, That's the specific context of this verse. But the principle uh, applies to all things, and we'll see that in the second verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do. So you go looking for counsel. So whatever it is that you're going to do in response to that counsel, what should it do? What should it look like? Do all to the glory of God. Flip over to Colossians chapter 3. And this is the parallel verse that uh, Paul is he's speaking to the church at Colossae. Giving them perspective on how they should live after he shared what is true in their salvation. In the first two chapters of the letter that he wrote, Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, whatever, everything, whatever you do in word or deed, do all, an exact number, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So as we read those two verses, they they beg obvious questions. I don't know about you, but when I read something, I don't understand it. I I start asking questions. I want to know. One of the first obvious questions here is, what does it mean to glorify God? If that's what I'm supposed to do in everything that I say, everything that I do, I'm to glorify Him. What's the obvious question? What does it mean to glorify God? What does that mean? What does that look like? How do you put your hands on that? How do you observe it? How do you evaluate it? Secondly, what does it mean to do all in the name of the Lord Jesus? What does that mean? What does glorifying God look like? And how can you and I know when you and I are glorifying God. See, because if, if we're going to be evaluated on whatever we say or do is to glorify Him, but we don't know what it means to glorify Him, Judgment Day is a bad time to reconsider how you've been doing. Nothing like the beginning of a new year to say, you know what, 
I'm going to look at my life and evaluate how I've been doing in all things. Is this my goal? Has happiness been my goal? Or is giving glory to God my number one goal? I'll just be honest with you, as Thomas shared in the uh, clipping hour this morning, the whole issue of abortion uh, that he discussed, the reason why abortion is so prevalent in America and no one thinks twice about it is because it's about my body and my pleasure. That's the final goal. See, God's not even in the equation. And what's sad is when Christians share the same perspective. It's about my pleasure. It's about, is it make me happy? I can't tell you how many wives or husbands have said to me, well, I'm just not happy. And that's why I'm going to go do something sinful. See, because the, the ultimate standard for them, right, is be happy. So for us to know how to glorify God, we need to do several things this morning. Define what the word glory means. Identify what the Bible says brings God glory. And then recommit ourselves to the mission of God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your scriptures, we would look at your face. And we would look at our hearts and our decisions and our values. And we would evaluate whether or not we truly are living for your glory. Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged, we'd be challenged. And Lord, where necessary, we'd be convicted and we would repent. Teach us, Father through your word. Amen. The first point in this morning's lesson is God's mission has always been to exalt his own glory among his creation. That's always been the purpose. If you can get there quickly, because I'm going to have to move fast with all that I want to cover today. Psalm 148, starting in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens and the waters that are above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. He has established them forever and ever. He made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. The psalmist then goes on to talk about how here on earth, the elements that he created here praise God. And then if you slip down to verse 11, he says, The kings of the earth and all peoples 
princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. Verse 13, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His glory is above the earth and heaven. Isaiah 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Romans 11:36. after Paul has talked about the ultimate plan for Israel and the Gentiles, and he talks about where is it going? This is how he ends the discussion on God's plan. He says in Romans 11, verse 36, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. And then he starts in the next verse, chapter 12, telling the Romans how they should live. Because from Him, through Him, and to Him is their motivation. Revelation 5.13 We're looking at the end of the plan. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. As you can see from these verses from the Old Testament all the way to the end of the New Testament, the whole purpose of God creating is to bring Himself glory. I remember was when I was a kid, I always struggled with that concept because I would say, well, isn't God proud and arrogant? He's told us to be humble, and yet He's proud. That's how I looked at it. Then I realized the reason He deserves glory is He deserves glory. I don't. (laughs) I'm a creature. He's the Creator. See, every time I'm proud, I'm trying to steal glory from Him. Isn't that what Satan wanted to do? I want to be above the Most High. I want to be worshipped. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to steal the glory of the Trinity. So all of history, every single created being, the heavens, the stars, are there to give glory to Him. The word glory in the Hebrew is habat. If you lived in L.A., you would, uh, there was a, uh, a Jewish group that was called Habat. There would be the Habat house, uh, and it just means glory. It means weighty of great worth. Now, in the old days, we used to think uh, uh, if something was heavy, it was of great value. Nowadays, we're excited when something is strong, but it's very light, right? Like in planes and things like that. But, but the whole concept of glory is, there, it's weighty. 
It's of substance. It's of incredible worth and value. In the Scriptures, that that word glory, that heaviness, the worthiness, it gives the concept of honor, majesty, splendor, eminence, which radiated from God's own being. That's what His glory was. God Himself could not be seen, but His radiance was the visible manifestation of His power. We'll talk about that in a minute. The glorious moral attributes of God were His glory. Jesus became the brightness of the Father's glory. And the word glory we we talk about all the time here in our world, it's fame. Fame. Renown. Excellence. Celebrities today, athletes, they have fame. When you mention their name, everybody knows who they are. You know you're really something when you only have a first name and everybody knows who you are. Jesus. It's just Jesus. So what constitutes the glory of God What does that look like such that you and I can begin to wrap our fingers around it? There are four components, and this is the second point. God's glory is displayed in four particular ways in Scripture. There are others, but these are the primary ones I want to look at this morning. His attributes, the external manifestation, His names, and His works, His signs, His deeds, His acts. So let's start with the first one. God's intrinsic attributes, His nature, His character. I'm just going to run through this list quickly. Uh, but these are what we know from Scripture is true about God. In His very essence, He is a spirit. He's invisible. And that's why we know He's present everywhere. He's present everywhere. There's certain mental attributes that He uh, manifests. He's all-knowing or omniscient. He's wise, omnisapient, meaning that even if you knew everything, do you know what to do with that information? I don't, but He does. He's not only all-knowing, He's all-wise. He's truthful. And He's faithful. He not only speaks the truth, He keeps His promises. What about His moral attributes? He's a good God. He's loving. He's merciful. Meaning He's willing to withhold judgment that you and I deserve. He's holy, completely without sin. He's a God of peace who's going to reign from the city of peace. And He's going to be the Prince of Peace. He's completely righteous. And then when He judges, when He comes as King and to judge, He will be completely just. He's a jealous God. 
That was another one I struggled with about wanting his own glory, pride. I was like, well, that's pride. And the other one was jealous. Doesn't it say we're not to be jealous? (laughs) But when there's only one God and there's only one bride, he's jealous for that bride. And he doesn't want to give his glory to anyone else. And he wants his bride to be blessed. And he wants the affection of his bride to be totally his. His other moral attribute is wrath. He is going to judge those who rebel against him. I don't know about you, but when I've been out witnessing, this is probably one of the biggest things. People will say, well, my God, and fill in the blank. What do they say? My God. What do they usually say? Yeah, my God would never send anyone to hell. That's why we're going down. When you, when you glorify God, you glorify Him for who He is, not who you think He is. Then that means you're creating the God, your God. And so when people say, well, my God, I always ask him, so how do you know that God, your God, doesn't send anyone to hell? I usually don't get good answers on that one. What attributes of purpose does he have? He has a will. He's completely free. Nothing restrains him except his own character. He has total freedom. To exercise his power. And that's the other attribute of his purpose is he's omnipotent, completely sovereign over his creation. And then there are terms used in Scripture that, that just describe him as a whole being. He's perfect. He's blessed. He's beautiful. And he's glorious. You may remember when Moses said to God, he said, Can I see your glory? Remember that? Can I see your glory? And God said, well, you you, you can't see my my face or or you'll die. Uh, But I'll set you over here and I'll pass by. Uh, And notice what God did as he passed by. Exodus 34, verse 5. He said, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Notice when he revealed his glory, he listed his character qualities. This is the God that you're going to enter into a covenant with. It's not the gods of Egypt. It's this God. And I want you to know who I am. Because it brings me glory. David said this about God in Psalm 139. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, You knew it all. Where can I go from Your Spirit? Or where can I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. 
If I make my bed and Sheol, behold, you are there. David was exalting the character qualities of God. He was giving glory to his creator. You know that you're worshiping the one and only true God if his character and attributes reflect those that are found in Scripture. Unfortunately, today, many are trying to redefine their God. They're tainting his glory. They're jading it. The second way that we can see God in his glory is he manifests it through uh, an an external manifestation. Uh, It's not so much now, uh, but it was in history as Israel was coming out of uh, Egypt. They were guided by the Shekinah glory of God. It was a pillar of water during the, the day, and it was a cloud of fire by night. And then when they, uh, the pillar would get up and move, they would move. And when the pillar would stop, they would stop. They would set up camp, set up the tabernacle, and then the Shekinah glory of God would rest on the tabernacle, tent of meeting, And they would wait there until the Shekinah glory would move. The word Shekinah actually has the implication of to dwell with. That's exactly what God was wanting to do, was to dwell with his people. Today, as believers, he dwells in, right? See, he's dwelling with us today because he's dwelling in each of us this morning who know Jesus by name. He dwells with us. Jesus, when he came, this is what it says in John 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did what among us? He dwelt among us. He's appealing back to uh, the, the exodus. He's trying to give a visual that that Shekinah glory of God, that he's the word made flesh and he came to dwell among us and we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Notice the character qualities that are uh, listed. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten of God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained or exegeted him. If you want to know what the Father is like, look at Jesus. Remember Nathaniel asked, just show us the Father. We'll be good. Come on, Jesus, just show us the Father and we'll be good. And he goes, Nathaniel, how long have I have to be with you? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. You've seen the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal. Hebrews 1 says it this way, God in these last days has spoken to us in His Son, through whom He also made the world, and His Son is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things 
by the word of his power. The sun is the radiance of his glory. When Jesus returns, what does the Bible say? Revelation 14:7 says, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory. Because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who has made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Jesus is the ultimate Shekinah glory of the Father. The third way that we experience and then give glory to God is through His names. Through His names. In Scripture, there are three different categories. There's actual names, there are titles, and then there are metaphors. Jesus was not literally a rock or a piece of bread. But it was a metaphor that was used to explain, again, a character quality or an aspect of his nature. Uh, And so remember the whole issue of the Exodus. Again, the Exodus is where you see the glory of God in all of its fullness. What's the first thing that God does to Moses before the whole Exodus gets started? How does it all start? He's out there in the looking for sheepies, right? Out on the mountain. And how does it all get started? What was the supernatural event that got his attention? It was a burning bush. And what did he discover? What was revealed to him in that encounter at the burning bush? It was the name of God. See, he revealed to him, he goes, I am that I am. Your fathers only knew me as God Almighty. I'm revealing to you that I am that I am. My name. This is who I am. This is my personal name. This is the one that's used most in the Old Testament. It's my name. It's who I am. And it explains I am that I am. I have no beginning. And I have no end. I just am. Am. Titles that uh, were given uh, to God was He's the King, He's the Savior. Isaiah said, as we read Isaiah's a, a church, He repeatedly said, "I want there is one Savior. I am the Savior. There is no other." He repeatedly said that He's the King. He's going to be the Judge. Also, the metaphors that are used for God. He's our rock. He's our fortress. He protects us in the cleft of the rock. He's stable as a rock. He's our shield. The fourth way that God reveals His glory is through His works. And the primary one is uh, His creation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of His hands. Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 4.11 
the 24 elders, they're bowing down to the Lamb of God, and this is what they say. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and because of your will, they existed and were created. God's creation brings in glory. It declares that He's the Creator, His handiwork. Also, when God did miracles and mighty acts, they brought Him glory. Exodus 14, verse 18, when God was talking about destroying Pharaoh, He says, "Then the Egypt- He's actually talking to him, saying, uh, you're stubborn uh, through, uh, through Moses. He said, you're stubborn, uh, but this is what I'm going to do. And it's, it's actually why I'm allowing you to be stubborn. Then the Egyptians will know, when, when God destroys Pharaoh, then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord and that I have gotten glory over Pharaoh through his chariots and his horsemen. Remember the Red Sea? The children of Israel did nothing except watch as God, with water, destroyed the most powerful army in the world. That brought him incredible glory. When you read uh, the next chapter after that, where Miriam, Moses' sister, begins to sing about the uh, acts, mighty acts of God, it talks about the Philistines, the Edomites, being petrified of this God who destroyed Pharaoh. It brought glory and fame to his name. It's the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, that destroyed Pharaoh. It brought him fame. When Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead... When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified in it. Incredible acts that God does. So what we found out is, from Scripture, to glorify God, He gets glory when His attributes, His character qualities are revealed and exalted. When His visible Shekinah presence is seen, felt, and worshipped. By the way, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness, every time they came out to worship, they saw the Shekinah glory there. It was there with them every day. When Solomon built the temple and he dedicated it, the Shekinah glory of God came down and dwelt on the temple. It was right there. That's why we know in Ezekiel, because they began to worship demons, they began to worship animals, snakes, and what have you. It says the Shekinah glory of God slowly moved away from the temple, went to the Mount of Olives, and went into the air, out the east gate. Well, in the second coming, who's coming on the Mount of Olives and coming back through the East Gate and going to reign in the temple. It's Jesus who is 
the exact representation of the Father, who is the Word made flesh. He will reign in His temple. And He will secure glory among all the nations. So the question this brings us back, His attributes, His Shekinah glory, His names and His works are how He receives glory. So the question is, is if we're, if we're to give Him glory in all things and whatever we say and do, and we're uh, to exalt the name of the Lord, how do we do that? Let me just real quick uh, show you in the Old Testament uh, how that was done. All those four ways were demonstrated by God in the presence of Israel. He took them to Mount Sinai and he entered into a covenant relationship with them. And he wanted to make sure that his glory was first in their mind. If you look at the chart that's up on the uh, screen uh, behind me, when he entered into a covenant agreement, what are the first four commands in Scripture? First one is you should have no other gods before me. And as we talked about, how do you know which God it is that you worship? What are his character qualities? What are his values? What are his attributes? God wanted to make sure that Israel never forgot that. It's always first and primary in their mind. Second command, they're not to worship graven images where they form it out of their own mind and it reflects um, the created order. Remember, he's the creator. He's not a creature. And so the Shekinah glory that gives him uh, glory and honor, it's a manifestation of light that God creates. And you can't reproduce that. And he's asking, please don't. Don't create a graven image of your own mind. And if you could flip to that verse uh, in Romans real quick. Notice what it says regarding the second command. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's how it works. The second you say no to the God who's revealed himself and the character that he expresses, and you try and form God of your own thinking, it's going to be something corruptible. The third command is we're not to take his name in vain. Why? Because we're to honor his name. We're to exalt his name. His name is above all names. We're not to profane it. And the fourth command is we're to keep the Sabbath holy. Uh, if you go to the other verse there uh, for me in Exodus, notice this is in Exodus 20 when it talks about the fourth commandment. It gives an explanation for why they're to keep the Sabbath holy. And this is what it says in Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Notice His creation. He wants... Israel to always remember, I'm the creator, you're the creation. And every time you celebrate the Sabbath, 
You are exalting my works of creation. And that gives me glory. Now, how does this relate to the New Testament? That's the Old Covenant. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What did he say? Yeah, what was it that he said? You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the first four commandments wrapped into one. Love God. And then he said, oh, there's a second. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's commands 5 through 10. Honor your father and mother. That's relationship here, not with God. Not steal. I'm taking from someone else. Jesus took the Ten Commandments, put them into two, and put the motivation of love. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know how to glorify God, that's it. That's the Ten Commandments wrapped up, and the first four commandments explain the four ways you give glory to God. And the, the final six commandments, what they're saying is, treat others the way God would treat others. And so when your character is like God's, you give Him glory. Let me give two key statements that come out of what it is we've talked about. They kind of summarize what I'm saying. This is the first statement. Christians give God glory when they love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, which will produce the following fruit. They will exalt the intrinsic attributes of the one true God in their worship and in their service. Number two, they will not worship any God of their own imagination, including idols of the heart. Number three, they will honor and proclaim God's name when speaking to others. And they will spread the fame of the Creator, the Redeemer, and recount the power and majesty of His mighty deeds, especially the ones that Jesus did on the cross that uh, Vincent talked about this morning. And raising Him from the dead. That's a mighty work. And that gives Him incredible glory and honor. Here's the second statement. Christians give God glory when they love others in the same way God would love others with this natural result. We're to honor our mother and fathers and be subject to authorities that are over us, according to Titus 3, verse 1. We're to entrust justice to God and not exact revenge or murder for personal offenses. We're not to violate the purity of our marital covenant as we entrust our marriage to God. We're to trust God to provide all of our needs rather than resort to stealing from others. We're to speak the truth in love 
and never be a false witness against a neighbor. We're to be content, grateful for all that God has generously provided, and not be covetous of others. So how does this look? Let me give you some practical, hands-on, 2022 ways of glorifying God with this mindset of knowing His name, His attributes, His acts, and His glory, the external manifestation of that. If that's my goal, what does that look like in 2022? Here's just some suggestions for you to consider. Exalt God's goodness each time you entrust all of your cares and struggles to Christ with an attitude of thanksgiving instead of complaining from a heart of entitlement. Number two, rejoice when you suffer for the name of Jesus, believing that God will keep his promise to you upon his return. Matthew 5 said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. That's the tough part. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Every one of these statements that I'm going to make here require faith. Do I believe that character quality of God is true such that I'm going to respond and live this way? See, it's when I believe in faith that what God says about Himself is true. For example, when He says He's uh, quick to forgive, He's long-suffering, and I say, no, God's going to punish me and He'll never forgive me, what have I just said? I said that what God said about himself is not true. He's a liar. See, how we live every day either proclaims we believe what is true about God, or we're saying, no, that's not true about God. So each one of these statements is really an issue of faith and unbelief. Do you believe what is true about God, and is it evident in your life, Or have you been living in a way to where you don't believe? Number three, take the time to pray for a friend right when they share their need with you because you you believe God hears and He answers prayer. And He does it for His glory. When He chooses to, you believe He also can heal and He can redeem that person you're praying for. He can do that. Or, this year, God may want you to choose in faith to think of creative ways to bless that person, oh, that precious person in your life who has intentionally and repeatedly hurt you in the past. Bruce, you're starting to meddle. Initiate thoughtful ways to meet his or her needs so that God will bring conviction of his or her sin and then exalt himself as the savior of your enemy's soul, should he so choose. 
do you and I believe that God could save our enemy? Even more so, do you and I want God to save our enemy? Genuinely rejoice in God's blessing of a friend because you're content with the Lord's generosity toward you and your family. For some, that may be a huge thing to do this year. Be generous with your time and money to help those in need, especially fellow believers, because God loves a cheerful giver. And whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. What's our motivation to give God glory in everything that we say and do? There's a little nugget, a couple of them in Scripture. I'll just share one. What what would motivate me to change this year, you and I, and make giving Him glory our number one priority? Why would I do that? Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4. You may want to write this one down. This is important. Colossians 3, verses 3 through 4. This is what Paul had to say to the Colossians. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, His second coming, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Think about that. The thing that God wants you to know is this. Those who give Him glory, He will glorify. He will exalt. He will give a name. Remember what He said to King David? I will give you a name of renown among all men. And to this day, we all know who David is. We say King David. We don't even mention who else. Just King David. We all know who he is throughout the whole world. God said, I will give him renown as well as his descendant forever. That's the motivation for us. He promises to exalt us as a reward for exalting him. Here's the, here's the choice. As we look at 2022, will we be about His glory or about my own happiness? Again. May the Lord give us courage, the faith, and the boldness to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness.